Good evening. Welcome to St. James. Uh, welcome to our midweek service. Uh, just a reminder, we're going to worship together, and then afterwards uh, we can head downstairs, and some people have brought some baked goods and stuff, and uh, we can uh, spend time together, hang out down there, and talk. So uh, as soon as the service is over, uh, I'll join you guys downstairs. Okay, let's go ahead and begin. Stand with me. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness and illumine your church. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ, we have come to the setting of the sun, and we look to the evening light. We sing to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. O Son of God, O Giver of life, the universe proclaims Your glory. Blessed are You, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who led Your people Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Enlighten our darkness by the light of Your Christ. May His Word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For You are merciful, and You love Your whole creation, and we, Your creatures, glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. Not in the strength of 
sermon text tonight is from um, 1 Timothy, the epistle uh, that Paul wrote to his student Timothy. And uh, as you can tell, maybe you can tell if you've been keeping score, uh, the psalm reading and then the hymn that we just sang is about uh, temptation to greed, temptation to value wealth, temptation to uh, identify ourselves uh, well with all different kinds of things, but here especially in the, in the reading and in the hymn uh, with wealth and money and how uh, actually, that's not gospel-centered, of course. Uh, epistle reading, uh, Paul's going to address that same thing. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So this is probably the best definition, at least in this reading here, of what greed is, the desire to be rich. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Remember Paul's writing to Timothy. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, uh, hacking our way through some of the deadly sins. I wish it was all seven, but we only have, I think, five weeks. So it's just going to be a handful of the deadly sins. Tonight, we're going to talk about greed and how the gospel addresses the greed which all of us struggle with. And as I was working on this this week, I realized, I, mean, I don't want anybody to think I was cheating, but I have to tell you this up front because if you do have notes from last week and you see that my outline is exactly the same, the realization that I, was coming, that, that, that I came to as I was studying this text this week is that everything that pride does to us, greed does the same thing. In every way that pride messes us up and greed messes, up, messes us up, the gospel rushes in to meet that point and fill the needs that pride and greed never can. And so a very, very similar outline, but I'm not going to say the same things, but it is a very similar outline to last time. It's important to talk about greed. I think that we probably, all of us, at least I know that I, out of the seven deadly sins, it's the one that I struggle with least, I think. But I actually know that that's probably not the case because I'm just too much of an American to not struggle with greed, to not believe in the myth that money and material things can satisfy me. Tim Keller likes to say when he talks about greed that Jesus, uh, you know, there's this place in Luke where Jesus says, watch out for greed. Full stop. Watch out for greed. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, that, that's Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Tim Keller likes to point out that Jesus never has to say things like, watch out for murder or watch out for sexual sin because these are things that we should watch out, but Jesus never has to say that. What he does have to say, though, is watch out for greed, because it's something that's so built into us as humans that it's, easier, it's easy to ignore, especially if the whole room of us conspires to value in money and possessions. It's very, very easy for me to not notice it when I struggle with myself. So to constantly be brought back into our minds that Scripture is full of, like the psalm that we read, it's full of this, these calls to don't worship money. You can't keep your money. It cannot satisfy you. It's a great gift of God, and you should enjoy it, and you should use it to serve your family and your friends and your communities, but don't ever imagine that it's actually going to save you. It can't possibly fill the hole that only God can fill. So let's get into this. i got three things for you real quick tonight. 
First of all, greed distorts our self-image, but the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. Greed distorts, struggling with greed distorts our self-image, but the gospel will teach us to value ourselves correctly. So, first of all, greed causes us to think better of ourselves than we should. Greed, money, the desire for material possessions causes us to think better of ourselves than we actually should. There's a study done in 2015 by a neuroscientist named Michael Varnum, and he gathered 58 uh, willing participants, and he put them through this uh, neurological study, you know, hooked them up to the machines. He categorized this group of people socioeconomically. So he had a group of, um, you know, wealthy people, relative to the whole group, a group of wealthy people, middle people, and then lower people. And he ran them through this a battery of tests, and one of the big ones was this. He showed all of them a picture of two faces, a, well, a series of faces, two different types, though. One of them sort of a neutral, you know, somebody whose face just looks sort of normal. And then one of them, some, uh, another type of picture of people's faces, like in obvious pain. And before the study happened, he polled all of the people, like, do you think that you're empathetic? Do you think that you typically have sympathy for other people? And the, the higher class people all graded themselves higher, much higher on, yes, we are very, very uh, you know, empathic. We very, very much, are, we care about other people. And, and the lower you went down that socioeconomic scale, the people would say, I don't really care as much about other people. But was, what's interesting, though, is that when, the, when uh, all the participants of the study had seen the faces of the people who had pain, and, you know, they were uh, sort of neurologically examined the whole time, the people who were higher class showed markedly less sympathy in their brains, the, the, sort of the, the, the parts of the brain that would, the, 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 would be the sources of sympathy and empathy, markedly less than the people who are lower class. And the people who are in the middle, less than the people who are lower class. And so what does this tell us? Well, I mean, there's any way you can, number of ways you can t- interpret uh, data like this, but one of the things that this study suggested was that people who have money, people who build, the, build their lives around the pursuit of material goods, have, there's a disjunct between the way they think they think about people and the way they actually feel about other people. That's a, that's a neurological study. I just actually think if you're just walking down the street or living life with people, it's almost a trope. I'm almost embarrassed to say this. People who have more money tend to care more about themselves and less about other people. I know that that's not a universal truth. We can easily throw outliers at each other. That just seems to be the case. And one thing that we can draw from that, and the Bible warns against this all throughout the book of Proverbs, all throughout the Psalms, is that by having money and relying on money, you will learn to not trust in God and not care about others as much. Be on your guard against greed, Jesus says. There's another uh, danger here, though, and that is, is that greed will make us think less of ourselves than we should. Greed can make us think less of ourselves than we should. There's a financial planner by the name of Tammy Lally who did a TED Talk several years ago, and the TED Talk revolved around what she called money shame. Money shame. People who don't have money, people who have have had money in the past but have lost it, people who have made bad investment decisions, they experience what she calls money shame. And this is her words. This This is how she defines money shame in her TED Talk. Money shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging based on your bank account balances, debts, homes, cars, or job title. 
And I know that if you just hear me say that like that, you're like, that's crazy. Nobody feels like that. Actually, we all feel like that. We all feel a certain amount of shame because there's others who are higher up in the pursuit of material gain than we are. And when we're around them, there's a certain sort of embarrassment. This is classic idolatry language, the intensely painful experience of believing that you're flawed and therefore unworthy. She's not a believer, by the way. She's not gonna frame this in terms of, uh, uh, of idolatry. Believing that you're flawed, believing that you're unworthy of love, believing that you don't belong because of the status of your bank account. Greed, which, by, so what's, what's, what's the foundational point here? Wealthy people are greedy. Middle-class people are greedy. People who don't have money are greedy. We all want more money, and we all tend to believe the lie that that money can actually rescue us, that that money is the solution to fulfilling us or to making us happier or to solving our problems, et cetera, fill in the blank. Both of us, wherever you're at in the spectrum, and I know there's two, two poles there, most of us are somewhere in the middle, but wherever you're at, you are either, your greed manifests in a sense, of, a sense of superiority because you have more than others, or a, sense, a false sense of inferiority because you have less than others. For almost, for almost all of this, it is both at the same time. I feel very superior to people who have less money than me, but I also feel very inferior to people who have more money than me. And you can understand how people would say, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, I just feel like lost, I feel like I don't know myself anymore. Well, of course you don't. We tend to judge, this is, we're talking about greed tonight, but in all sort of categories of life, we tend to judge ourselves and compare ourselves based upon other people. And if I get my status and my feelings based upon the amount of money you do or don't have, of course I'm gonna be lost. Of course I'm gonna not know who I myself am. This is what greed, like all sin, fundamentally does to us. It distorts our own self-perception. Idols always do this. They always disorient us to our real selves. You never know if you're attractive or unattractive if being attractive is your God. You never know if you've actually made enough career advancement if career advancement is your God. Because you can get the raise and feel really good about yourself, but then if somebody next year gets the promotion above you, then you're crushed. Idols always, and greed's the same way, always disorient us to ourselves. But the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. Look down at the epistle reading. Look at the very beginning, verse six. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's kind of the setup for the next two verses. Godliness and contentment, that's the gain that you're looking for. Not financial gain, not material gain, uh, you, you know, not the goods of this world, but godliness and contentment, this sweet couple is the gain that the human heart longs for. Now, what does he mean by godliness? He does not mean doing godly deeds, what he means by godliness is right in the next verse, verse seven. By the way, contentment he's going to address in verse eight. But in verse seven, here's, here's what godliness is. Godliness is looking and understanding that God is completely in charge and money is not. God is completely in charge and money is not. So here's, here's how he says it in verse seven. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's just another way, this is godliness here. It's just another way of describing grace. The money that you have or that you don't have it wasn't ever yours to begin with. You didn't bring anything into the world. You're not gonna take anything out of the world. Whatever you do have, a lot or a little, or whatever that means, and it's kind of meaningless because it's compared to other people. Whatever you do have, it's a gift of God. That's what godliness is, is to recognize the principle of grace. Nothing that I own is mine. My worth is not in what I own. It's not in my career success. It's not in what if people like me. It's not in the amount of money that I have. Christ is my treasure. That's, 
That, that, that's the principle of godliness here. All of life is grace. Well, the next verse, verse eight, addresses the contentment one. Verse eight says, but if we have food and clothing, with these will we be content. So whatever you have, and, and he's not saying that if you don't have food or clothing or shelter, that you should just be content with it. He's saying like food and clothing, God wants to give you that. He does it for the flowers of the field. He will do it for you. Food and clothing, be content with it. Well, that, what's that? That's just a fancy way of saying faith, right? Like to trust God that if he, whatever he's given me, I can be content with that. I can live with that. That's what's good for me. So what, what, in other words, godliness with contentment is actually just fa- uh, fancy language for salvation by grace, godliness, through faith, contentment. Living a life where you don't need money to save you, but salvation in Jesus Christ by grace through faith is where you get your salvation from. By the way, I, I know I say this in here a lot. Can I do it one more time? I'm going to keep on harping on this. Salvation is not God's plan for how you get to heaven when you die. So that, that's a part of it, definitely. Salvation is God's plan to rescue you. Too often we as Christians like, oh, I trust Jesus to get to heaven when I die, but as far as like solving my problems here and now, I need money, or I need career success, or I need people to like me, or I need romance. And what salvation is in the Bible, it's not just one little part of your future life. Salvation is everything. God wants to save you in every area of your life. Godliness with contentment is in fact, great gain. Okay, this brings us to the second point. Greed distorts relationships, but the gospel repairs them. For point number one, greed, greed distorts our self-image, but the gospel teaches us to value ourselves correctly. Point number two, greed distorts relationships, but the gospel repairs them. Because greed distorts our view of ourselves, point number one, it necessarily distorts our view of others. You can't know who other people are if you don't even know who yourself is. But we misjudge ourselves, and so we misjudge other people. This creates severe relationship damage. Verse nine says this, keep on going in verse nine. I think this is interesting. Paul says, alternatively to the grace by faith method, verse nine, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now what's interesting, I think this is interesting. He doesn't say which plunges them like if you have greed, it's going, to, it's going to plunge you. He says, if you have greed, it's going to plunge people. It's not just us that, hurt, that, that, that our greed hurts. It's people that our greed hurts. What's he saying? He's saying that greed destroys your relationships around you. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, three from sort of real life, whatever that means, and one from Scripture. So I have a friend who... Has, uh, I have a good friend who has a friend, and I don't, I don't know the other friend, but the other friend recently within the past five to 10 years came into a large amount of money through his work. And he moved out of the neighborhood that he lived in where they would always hang out, and he moved into a fancy gated neighborhood in the town where they live. And they're still friends, but my, my friend said to me, it's different now. I can tell it's different for him, and I can tell it's different for me. I feel differently now because he has a ton more money than I do, and I can feel the gap. Now, who's at fault there? We would say it's a systemic issue. They're both at fault there. But it's almost unavoidable because this, you, you grow up drinking this in your cereal milk and breathing it in your air, that our value is in what we have, and then somebody, bam, shoots up way higher than you, and it is going to damage that relationship unless the gospel comes and addresses it right right in the heart of it, almost immediately, and very, very strongly. And we also, so if you look around at any church in America, you will find that this is largely the case. 
that almost everybody in that building has basically the same socioeconomic status. It's very, very rare to find a church that has, that has wealthy people and poor people in it. And the reason why is, is because greed is such an idol that it prohibits us from having meaningful relationships with people with whom we can't feel comfortable because they have less than us or more than us. Greed damages relationships. Greed has torn apart the Christian church, if I can, if I can say that as strongly as possible. Side note, one of the ways that we at St. James can undermine a culture of greed with the gospel is to freely welcome people who are way different than us, whatever that means, in any sort of area, is to welcome those people. But I'll give you some more examples. Parents putting pressure on themselves to give their kids things. I was talking with a friend just a couple days ago about how their parents would dump presents on them at Christmas, tons and tons of presents. And this person said to me, I in the moment, I was actually consciously pushing back against that. You are trying to manipulate me into being happy. Now, if you ask the parents, they'd be like, we just love the kid. And that's true. But dumping presents on them because I need you to be happy. And I need to know that if I give you things, it's good enough to make you happy. And the kid knowing that it's a manipulation, that I'm giving you things because I'm trying to earn your happiness. And this person said to me, I strongly, even when I was a little kid, strongly pushed back on my parents. And in many ways, this person said, willingly chose poverty as a rejection of my parents' loving, yes, but in this person's mind, loving, desire to control them by giving them things. Well, this is what greed does. It tears apart relationships because it turns money into a tool to control, even however, however good intentioned. It turns money into a, a, a tool, that gifts into a tool to control. Give you another example here. This is just this is almost a trope as well. Spouses damaging their marriage through the economic trade-off of being devoted to their jobs. Families ruining relationships, spouses ruining relationships with each other, friends ruining relationships with each other. Because I just don't have time to hang out anymore. That sort of thing. Where you value career advancement, and these stories are a dime a dozen, and like we could just pull ourselves and this is probably the one where more than half of you would raise their hands and be like, and my kids probably would too, to be honest with you to say, yeah, I wish my dad was around more. But when it comes up, you know, it's the whole cat in the cradle thing. I don't have time. I, I, sorry, I've got to go make money for the family. i got to support us. You know, it's important that you guys go to Lutheran school or that you guys have a, uh, that you can play, you know, uh, select ball this year, that you can have, you know, expensive skating lessons or whatever it is. All of those are ways of saying what we really value here is my career advancement and the way that I'm going to soothe my conscience is by saying I'm doing it for the kids. Well, kids and parents can both see that this is extremely damaging. They can both see this. Last one is a biblical one, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's a situation in the Corinthian church, and it's this, is that there are wealthy people and not wealthy people there, and the, when they come together for their church fellowship meal tied up with Holy Communion, the wealthy people are eating all the food and the poor people aren't eating food. Well, I don't know what the wealthy people were saying, but I imagine if they were Americans, it was something along the lines of, well, you should have paid more attention in school. You should have got a better job. You know, hey, we all have equal opportunities. You should have worked harder. That's probably what they were saying. What they were doing, though, is they were tearing apart the Church of Christ by dividing the church up socioeconomically. It's extremely damaging. The way that we handle it is, is we make sure that we're all on the same socioeconomic level. That way we don't have to deal with it. We don't need the gospel to help us because we're all equal in our uh, uh, pocketbooks. That's one way to deal with it. 
The problem, though, like the other problems, is repaired by the gospel because the gospel unites us together in Jesus. Specifically, how does, how does Paul do this? This is interesting to me. How does Paul unite people with the gospel against the idol of greed? The main primary tool that Paul has for this is the sacraments. In 1 Corinthians 11, how does Paul unite a church that's divided over socioeconomic differences? He says this, you are one body. Rich people, poor people, you have no right to worship separately because when you come to the rail, you take the one body, Jesus, and that makes you the one body, the church. Communion means that there are no differences between poor and rich. You are all together. That's your primary. The other way he does it in Galatians 3 is through baptism, the other sacrament. He says, if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, as many of, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Next verse, what's the payout? He says this, there is neither then slave nor free amongst other things. If you've been baptized into Christ and I've been baptized into Christ, that's our identity. Our identity is not our money. Our identity is that we have been united to Jesus Christ. That trumps every other thing that we think that might separate differences from us. The antidote to greed is the gospel. For Paul specifically, the gospel embodied in the sacraments. The gospel repairs relationships. If we understand when we come to the rail, if we understand that I am shoulder to shoulder with people who are sharing in the same Jesus as me, and that makes us completely equal in the eyes of God. If we remember our baptisms and remember that super rich people have been baptized and super poor people have been baptized, and that doesn't mean anything anymore as far as our identity and status is concerned because we are both equal in Jesus Christ. Last thing, greed distorts salvation itself, but the gospel gives us salvation. Look at verse 10. Uh, let me turn back here. Verse 10, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, the craving for money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Lest you think that you can love money and Jesus at the same time, lest we think that Jesus was not getting it. He, he just wasn't aware of capitalism, maybe, when he says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't serve God and money. He says it here, people who, have, people who have chased after money have lost their faith. People who have committed themselves to finding salvation in material goods have lost their faith. They have strayed from Jesus. They've pierced their faith through with many, they've pierced themselves through with many pangs and have wandered away from the faith. The American dream is a promise, and the promise is that money can save you. It has a meta-narrative. It tells a big story that it invites all of us to join in. And the story is this. Poor boy makes good. Upward mobility, socioeconomically speaking. That's what you can do if you'll just work hard and be honest and apply yourself and maybe use a little innovation that you too can be wealthier than your parents. And we all believe that. We have, a, you know, we, we, the fall is I, I don't have enough money. Redemption is I work hard and I get the job, and I get the house, and I get the bank account. The eschatology is, I get to retire and play golf someday. It's this whole narrative. It's this whole salvation story. And the gospel is going to try to undermine it because it is a lie. It is a lie. The promise that, sal the promise that salvation comes to, the promise that you can be happy if you have more money, is an anti-gospel, anti-Jesus lie. There's a, a quote by Stanley Horowitz that I found. He's thinking about the... Uh, uh, ninth and 10th commandment, and he says this. He's talking about the word affluenza. Remember that from a few years ago? It's kind of a popular word in the 
talking about these rich kids with the rich parents who are kind of entitled, and the, and the word for it was affluenza. And Stanley Hauerwas says that, that, word, that, that word stinks because uh, greed is not a sickness, it's a sin. He says greed is the right word, it's sin, not sickness. The problem, though, is that in the world in which we live, we've learned to call greed ambition or providing for my family. And those are great family values that we all believe in, but it's actually just a mask for greed. And you guys know what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't provide for your family. I'm saying that we all use the language of providing for our family to mask greed. We've learned to call greed getting ahead. We've learned to call greed working for a better life. We've learned to call greed pleasure. And by doing this, we've managed to blacken our, mirror, blacken our mirrors so that we no longer see ourselves. He wraps up with a conversation about covetousness, which says this. Greed is right at the heart of covetousness, which is the back bookend of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says you should have no other gods. You should fear, love, and trust in nobody but the Creator God in Jesus Christ. The commandments wrap up with, you are going to be tempted to do this. You're going to be tempted to fear, love, and trust in money. You're going to fear losing money above all things. You're going to love money above all things. You're going to trust in money above all things. And that's idolatry. And the only way to get rid of it is the gospel. It's to find your highest. You can't say, like, I'm going to stop loving money. You just can't do that. What you're going to have to do is to find a higher value in Jesus Christ, which is why Paul ends this section with this. Have you, did, when we read this, did, did anybody wonder, like, he's talking about greed, and then he jumps into this sort of doxology. What's up with that? Well, Paul gets it. Paul gets that the antidote to greed is not stop loving money. It's not possible. The antidote to greed is look at Jesus. Look how much more valuable Jesus is than your money or your house or your IRA, or your cars, or whatever it is that you're hoping for. So he wraps up like this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of try to read through this with minimal amount of comments. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee greed. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, check out this line, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What was the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate? Remember what it was? It was this, I am the one who's coming on the clouds with great glory. I am the king. I am the king that Caesar wants to be, but never can be. I'm the Lord who can actually fulfill you in ways that the false Lord Caesar never can. All the money and all the power of the empire can never be matched up by me, the one who's about to die on the cross. That's the good confession that, that Paul's referring to. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, not money, not any sort of financial system. Jesus is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, so this is the psalm reading again, right? Money can, you, money's not going to last forever. Naked you came into the world and naked you'll leave. There is one thing that's immortal. The only thing that's immortal in the entire world is Jesus of Nazareth, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's sing the Magnificat together.
please stand for prayer. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house, and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For Matt Harrison and Timothy Shar, for all pastors in Christ, for all servants of the church, and for all the people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For President Biden, Governor Pritzker, Mayor Marcus, for all public servants, for the government and those who protect us, that they may be upheld and strengthened in every good deed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who work to bring peace, justice, health, and protection in this and every place, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who bring offerings, those who do good works in this congregation, those who toil, those who sing, and all the people here present who await from the Lord great and abundant mercy, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For favorable weather, for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, and need, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the faithful who have gone before us and are with Christ, let us give thanks to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, let us commend ourselves, one another, and our whole life to Christ our Lord. To you, O Lord. O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, Give to us, your servants, that peace which the world can't give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may live in peace and quietness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless and preserve you. Amen. Please stay standing for the final hymn.